How do tyrants hold on to power for so long? For that matter, why is the tenure of successful democratic leaders so brief? How can countries with such misguided and corrupt economic policies survive for so long? Why are countries that are prone to natural disasters so often unprepared when they happen? And how can lands rich with natural resources at the same time support populations stricken with poverty? Nat, Adil, we're back to a very special episode of Made You Think. We are excited to be here and excited that Adil is uh, joining us. For this What's going episode. on, guys? For Thanks for having episodes. me back. You all might remember Adil from our crypto episode back in was it 2017 or 2018? I think it was 17. It was the bull run, that like 2017 bull run. It's hilarious. Or I got him and Taylor. Sometime. Yeah. 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 I want to re-listen I, to that and see like all the the amazing insight. See what that we was got right and so got wrong. Really, yeah. <laughs> I actually checked it out a few weeks ago. We were we were pretty good for a couple uh, early nascent crypto fellows. Yeah, I wonder what is going on in crypto today that will still be relevant in four years. Yeah, surely, surely every single one of these profile picture NFT projects is going to make it. <laughs> of course, one hundred percent. Yeah, um, and then he was also with us for this whole Sapiens uh, series. Oh, that's which right, was like Sapiens three or too. four episodes. I yeah, think, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we I think we did three episodes on that. And um, I think we did the sequel. So we did Sapiens and then we did, what was the sequel's name? I always forget because that one was more forgettable. Homodeus, yeah. Yep. So it deals back with us today. We're going to cover the Dictator's Handbook, which is an excellent book, in my opinion, at least. I don't know what you guys think. Politics makes a lot more sense to me now, I think, than it did before we started, uh, or at least before I read this book. I think some of these things I probably had a sense for but they lay it out really well in this book so yeah definitely excited to uh to dig in yeah i liked this felt very much like a uh 48 laws of power style book where it there's nothing there's nothing rosy or idealistic about it it's just very straightforward like here is how the incentives work in this realm and here's like how to think about the incentives at play kind of like in this environment. And it's not, it's not good or bad, or, you know, they even try to move away from using terms like democratic versus authoritarian. It's just like, here are the incentives and in the different political structures. And like, here's how to think about like why people do things and why they should or should not do different things. And just like understanding politics through that lens. It's a, uh, it's definitely very helpful or helpful and perspective altering in that sense, which I rather liked about it. They shared like the rules of the game, I think is the sense yeah, that I got. Good right? it was like, yeah. I really enjoyed the, uh, everything that seems counterintuitive about our leaders where it looks like what they're actually doing is stupid and in reality is actually very smart and calculated. And yeah. certain things that we view as good or bad are actually the exact opposite as we view them. Yeah, like I think the foreign aid example, which we'll obviously get into, was yeah. a really, really interesting one. Yeah, and I think maybe before we dive into, there's some, uh, speaking of crypto, there's definitely some crypto relevance here as well. Because kind of one of, the, one of the core points that I think the authors make is relying on a larger coalition, and we'll get into what all these terms really mean, but um, like a larger coalition of, of individuals uh, or stakeholders results in sort of a more equitable and fair and just type of system. Um, so comparing like dictatorships, authoritarians versus 
democracies, that's one of the core differences. And they give they give examples, by the way, beyond just politics. They go into corporate environments. Um, they even talk about the Green Bay Packers being a uh, publicly owned team. I'm a shareholder. You don't get very many rights besides uh, <laughs> getting to vote for the board of directors. But I mean, to be fair, the team has basically always turned a profit. And I think the stadium has been sold out for like 50 straight years. And they're in like this tiny, tiny town. And so I think the point they're trying to make is, hey, this is like sort of a decentralized management approach rather than having like a single owner or a dictator ownership structure. Yeah. Um, it, so yeah. This is one of the uh, crypto canon, this, the sovereign individual seeing like a state. And even though like there's only one main idea, the selectorate theory that really transfers, I think it intuitively begins to make a lot more of the crypto buzzwords make sense. Like decentralization, so, censorship resistance, those actually take on quite a bit of meaning and weight uh, once you view them through the lens of selectorate theory. Do you want to just talk for a sec about selectorate theory? Yeah, why don't we, uh, why don't we get into it? So selectorate theory in a sentence is basically the way we normally talk about a political system being democratic or autocratic is incorrect. It's actually based on the size of uh, these three groups uh, called the winning coalition, the real selectorate, and the nominal selectorate. And the size of those groups determines whether a country that we intuitively view as authoritarian or democratic is authoritarian or democratic. So to expand on what it actually looks like, a democratic society has a very large selectorate, which means a very large group of people that the leaders are actually beholden to. Uh, being beholden to a group of people basically means who can allow you to get into power and maintain power. Those are sort of the two ways they define the power of the selectorate. Meanwhile, in the autocratic regimes, you have a small selectorate, which means there's a small group of people that help you accumulate and maintain power. The three terms I said earlier, which is uh, winning coalition, real selectorate, and nominal selectorate, are basically the three sort of tiers of importance uh, when you're part of this coalition. So the winning coalition are the essentials, the real selectorate are the people who actually choose people to be in charge, and then the nominal selectorate is anyone who has any kind of say in the process, but doesn't really actually have any power. So they lump like for the U.S., for example, they lump like in the nominal selectorate, they'll, they'll lump in basically anybody who has uh, eligibility to vote. So exactly. all citizens, yeah, voting age, basically. And yeah, the, the yeah. real selectorate in America would be the electoral college and the winning coalition is like the media, pundits and so on. Or it's arguably like the swing state people, right? It's like there, well, yeah, there's so really I, only I, a handful of states that seem to determine that's what I was going to say. Time. I understood yeah. it different from that a deal. Like, I think this quotation is helpful where they're talking about Bell, California, and it says the interchangeables in Bell were the 9,395 registered voters. The influentials were the 2,235 who actually voted. And the essentials were the 473 voters whose support was needed to win a seat mm -hmm. on city council so that the smallest group are the ones whose votes you actually need because many people, even though they vote, they're, you know, they're like a voter in New York that's always going to go blue. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like your vote doesn't really right. matter because you're yeah. not like a swing state. Um, yeah, you're right. That, that was how I understood I, it. Anyway. I think they kind of defined it both ways because the winning coalition is also a constant, right? Whereas the flip vote, the last essential vote could be anybody. The winning coalition mm. is like how the chairperson of CNN, for example, that's someone who is going to help you flip those votes repeatedly, who you necessarily want on your side. But I, I think I think they kind of use it both ways throughout the book was how I understood it. Well, I, I think that's a different thing because I think the winning coalition 
is isn't that more like the the cronies for lack of a better term like the people who are like a subset of those essentials who are like the ones that you they're basically the ones who can like create the rest of the essentials out of the like interchangeables or out of their their influence yeah out of their sphere of influence right it's almost like a a subset yeah, because so they're they, the ones they say, who get the rewards, I guess. They use the word yeah. coalition. Although I guess they're using coalition here to refer to gerrymandering, right? Like they 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 reference, you know, why does Congress gerrymander districts? Because of rule one to keep the coalition as small as possible. So the coalition mm-hmm. must be, at least maybe in that in that sense, it's the people who whose votes you actually need to win in order to win. And the smaller that is, the more autocratic the voting system is. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a great argument against the electoral college system. Yeah. <laughs> because I, you know, I've, you hear about people saying like, oh, we have to get rid of the electoral college. But usually people just say that because the person they wanted to win didn't win uh, the electoral college, but they won the they, they won the popular vote. But this is like a really coherent argument for that, because right now, at least the way they're defining that sort of essentials, right, group of people, at least the way this is how I was reading that section is. Basically, it's like Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, maybe, right? It's like Arizona, maybe. It's like a handful of states where your vote actually, if you're a voter in that state, you're even part of this sort of second group. And if you're, if you're, you know, in a place like New York, as you mentioned, or California, or, you know, potentially like Oklahoma or something like that, right? Your your state is going to go how it's going to go, whether you vote or not. And so in, in, in a, in a sense, you're basically, you, yeah, sure. You're part of that nominal selectorate, but you're not, you're not really selecting the leader in, in one of those states. Like your vote as a, you know, marginal vote isn't really yeah. important. There, there are a few things in the book that I found to be pretty damning about American democracy. Another one being the way they narrow whose votes count. Like the fact that we start mm-hmm. in Iowa, for example, gives yeah. Iowans disproportionate say over federal elections as opposed to, you know, California, where we always know it's going to go blue. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, they do spend a lot of time. This is Matt, back to your point about this being like a 48 laws of power type of book. Yeah. Um, I also like their writing style a lot where they're just like, they're like, we're not saying like Robert Mugabe is a good person, but you know, you have to admire his like ability to stay in power despite the all incentives of just make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, or his like ability to play this game of staying in power. Yeah, and so I mean that's really what this this book is in some ways like Forty Eight Laws of Power because it is a book essentially about pow- like getting and keeping power and how to do that. And so yeah, it's, I, I just found there were so many things in here that uh, that were really interesting. The thing that that I think is like the core point, which again, I feel like I probably understood on some level, but didn't internalize or at least like connect to politics. I feel like I connect this in in business a lot, but I don't really connect this for politics is that it's not really about the country or about a state or anything. It's about the individuals and their individual incentives. And it's like, it's, this is like one of those things where like in one domain, you understand something, but you don't apply it to like other domains. Mm -hmm. So I get really frustrated with this in politics, but I feel like I mentioned this almost seemingly like a couple times a week where it's like, if you're selling to a large company, you're not selling to the company, you're selling to the, your, your counterparty, like who's the person you're pitching to internally and what do they care about and what are they worried about? It's like, it's easy to like, for me, at least to understand it in that context until reading this book, I don't think I really understood it from a political standpoint. 
And that's like their initial point in the book was like, you know, uh, you're not talking about national interests. And I think there's this great quote uh, from the book where, yeah, here it is. It says, when addressing politics, we must accustom ourselves to think and speak about the actions and interests of specific named leaders, rather than thinking and talking about fuzzy ideas like the national interest, the common good, and the general welfare. Like, those are all great ideas, but they're, I think, in the opinion of the authors and I guess in the opinion of evidence as well and how we see leaders act, like it's not really about that. Those are nice things to say, but yeah. it's not really, that's not really how they're making the decisions that they make. So I think like one interesting question this brings up is why do politicians say or appear to believe somewhat extreme things then, right? So I'm thinking like an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders who will go on Twitter and say things that are like verifiably false with like this, the tiniest modicum of effort, right? But appeal to like a super progressive base. Like right? inflation. But, Inflation's caused by corporate greed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's a good example, right? <laughs> or that like Elon Musk doesn't pay taxes when he pays right. like <laughs> the most taxes of anybody in all of history, right? Um, so you would you would think that that kind of is counterproductive because anybody who is like, you know, <laughs> I can't say the word I want to say. Uh, anybody who is like progressively pilled enough to believe some of those things doesn't really need to be convinced to vote for these people, right? Like they're already That's there. True. So yeah. like they're not part of their like essential cohort they have to appeal to. So like, what is the thinking with like continuing to be that far over, right? Like that, that was yeah, kind of like one question true. I had there is like, because I, you know, we, we have this kind of like concept, which I think is generally true that a candidate needs to like appeal to the more extremes to get the nomination. And then they have to like come back to the middle to win a general election. But even in that, it kind of seems like it would almost be counterproductive to appeal to the extremes at all because the extremes are not going to be part of your essential voters. It's going to be all these quiet people in the middle. So I don't have an answer to that. Like a deal, you're, you're more politically minded than I am. So maybe you have thoughts on that. I mean, you sort of said the one thing I was going to say, which is uh, you go from like a small group that where you need to win a large chunk of a small group, and then you move to a big group, which is the entire country. And you have to get uh, closer and closer to the center. But I don't actually have any ideas as to why it's a good thing to do earlier. Like things that are outside of the realm of this book to me suggest intuitive reasons why one might do that. Like you want to stay in the news cycle and get your name out there. You want to compete. Yeah, that's with a other good point. There might be other factors. Yeah. Like Warren is actually fighting for the vote of the progressives against like AOC, Bernie, and whomever else she may consider like a threat yep. in that small yeah. domain. So for them, it's like you have this very local contest, and then it becomes a more global contest. You're seeing the same thing on the right. It's like Rick DeSantis is, you know, talking big game as like a very far right guy. My guess is that he's probably not quite as far right as he suggests. Uh, yeah. From what I've seen, he yeah. seems to govern in a little bit less of an insane way than his rhetoric. Uh, but there must be something he's getting out of it, either by being in the news I mean, cycle. I think, well, yeah, I think a lot of these guys are. Base. Go ahead, Nat. I was going to say, like, with DeSantis, it almost makes more sense because he's it's it's sort of like we have this DeSantis or Trump in 2024 like belief right now and so like he almost has to 
be a little bit more on the insane side because some of his essentials are the like vocal Trump supporters, right? And like he needs to seem crazy enough to get their approval, like instead of or along with Trump's, right? Uh, but maybe that maybe that's the answer too, right? Is that like part yeah. of the essentials are the like hyper vocal like ends of uh, both spectrums and like you need to try to grab them as well as the people in the middle. There's also the uh, voting blocks, right? Like if DeSantis can charm Trump and Trump doesn't run, then that whole block is just mm. that's like true. one. It's a one piece move that brings a lot of other people. It's sort of like in the book they talk about you go to like a tribal elder and you just convince one person and then the elder sort of handles everybody beneath them in order to comply. It's yeah. just like so how you- a lot of progressives voted for Biden without really supporting much of what he's done in the past, except for the fact that he's endorsed by, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, you know, everybody. And so they were incredibly influential in that election. And maybe, I mean, going back to what you were saying a second ago, Nat, like maybe everybody's just sort of angling for 2024 early vote, you know, the, the sort of poll position, like Elizabeth Warren is probably angling to be the, progressive sort of poll position of that that chunk of voters right and who knows maybe that's a bigger chunk now and that that group can determine who's the nominee for for the democrats well, if it's not biden and also to a deal's point right there's definitely this element of like okay i i'm not going to win the like superpower position but i can win within my demographic and if I am the person who controls the most progressive votes, then I'm the one that the nominee needs to make happy, which means I can bargain for like more, you know, bills, allowances, whatever money. Uh, and so that allows them to like accrue more power going into the next election because they can like drive all those votes, like you're saying, by like controlling those blocks. So it makes sense from that perspective, too. Like she can't believe a lot of those things that she's tweeted. Like she's she's way too smart she's, to believe. She's those pretty. Things. She's pretty old. It might be just you know, <laughs> goof up there. She could be just like running on Adderall and <laughs> who knows who knows what else they're jacking up these Adderall and wine or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> these eighty year old politicians. Um, I want I want what they're on. Right, like <laughs> man, <laughs> load me up on that. The things I could get done. Oh man. <laughs> No, I mean, and and Trump Trump said a lot of like ridiculous shit on on uh, Twitter, obviously. And in his case, I, in some ways, I this might be like stupid of me, but in his case, I feel like it was less uh, strategic and just more funny. like what he felt like tweeting. <laughs> like, man, I you know, it's like don't like the guy but, very much, but I really miss his Twitter. I, I was like, <laughs> that's why Twitter's stock is in the toilet. I know the guy has jokes. <laughs> <laughs> He was also very good. There's just so many other incentives at play because like he was he did a lot of that stuff to distract from news yes. stories he didn't want seeing. So he would yeah, build up yeah. something that was bigger, which like makes me wonder. Like in the examples of like you know Warren saying the stuff about inflation, which is just like breathtakingly wrong. Like, is there another thing that that covered up that didn't get circulated instead? Right? There, there could be all these other reasons that have nothing to do with the coalition in like a it's- single example. I mean, I suspect a lot of that rhetoric was to distract from the fact that it was like democratic policy that, you know, destroyed everyone's savings accounts. So Although, it's see, like, this boy, is I like... hope we don't like lose the election in 2022, right? And so we need to make it look like businesses. The narrative. The, yeah, exactly. Businesses yeah. are to blame. It's not our policy. I view it. I view the like inflation. I mean, this is definitely a tangent, but I view the inflation issue as more of like a game of hot potato that the Democrats happen to lose. Because like 
<laughs> it's been pretty messed up since like 2008. And it was, it just, I, I feel yeah, like there have been so QE many started, people. Basically. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Like there've been so yeah. many people who are like this year, this is the year inflation is going to go out of control. And it didn't, and it didn't, and it didn't for so long. And then it just sort of, I mean, I think like COVID did not help like with the $3 trillion being added to the system. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was like pouring like gasoline into the fire, but it was, it was kind of like on this path. Like maybe this accelerated the path, well, that, but yeah. it seemed like it was inevitable. Yeah, there I mean, was that was the potato, right? Right. Was exactly. that with, with, with QA for long enough and without being able to lower rates any further, your only option left thing. So whoever got hit with a bad enough recession would exactly. have to print money because that was the only recourse left. Yep. yep. And, then and then the inflation didn't era. hit Trump. And the yeah. infl- inflation didn't hit Trump because he got out of office like just as it was kicking off, like the inflation started getting out of control. Well, if he had wa- I, mean, I don't think that's right because they it wasn't his administration that uh, started the money printing, right? That started after he left. So the no, inflation- no, no, that was during COVID. It was, it was, it was definitely, but it's not really. Up not, to the I don't president, think the bulk right? of it though. I thought it was like in in like the uh, March 2020 time. March, April, 2020. It's not like they've stopped. I mean, they're just yeah. starting to taper now. Yeah, they're still going. Yeah. That's also how I understand it. Okay, I could be wrong here. Yeah. There's, there's this one quote this reminded me of where uh, I'm just going to read from the book for a second. When democratic politicians lament mortgaging our children's future, they're really regretting that it was not them who came up with the popular policy that voters actually want. Voters might feel guilty about the latest $1 trillion program, but see if they actually vote to reject it. With parents like that, what children need enemies? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Everybody yeah. wanted the COVID money. Those stimmies yep. were nice. I mean, okay, so so I like, found the I, numbers. By the way, I found the numbers. Oh, okay, so March ahead. between March 11th and June 10th, 2020, the size of the Fed's balance sheet went from 4.3 trillion to 7.2 trillion. Okay. However, today it is, it's still higher than it was at that time. It's 8.88 trillion as of February 8th, 2022. So okay. it's gone so, up. I mean, it's, it's gone up. It's continued to go up. Like it's not like, right, it stopped, right. but that rate of, inc- it's basically like a pretty steady chart up. And then there's just like the spike up uh, during those three months. Got and it. then it just kind of continues the same trend line it was on before. Yeah. Man, that stimmy period was fun. Everyone got like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because a lot of the money didn't like, even go to like individuals who would need the money. Kind of went to random yeah. places. I, I don't remember all the details off the top of Helicopter my head. Helicopter money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, that was kind of like the 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 good and bad of like giving so much of it to businesses, right? Yeah. It was like they probably did reduce like layoffs, but it probably would have had a lot more impact just going straight into people's hands. Right. Cause it's like a lot of businesses I'm sure just retained people long enough to get to like write off the debt. And then they were like, all right, now we can downsize. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we, uh, should we dive into the five rules and then talk about how to accumulate power? Yeah. Oh, there's tangent one. over. That's no fun. <laughs> Did you guys ever get the tangent button? No, no we didn't. We didn't, if any listener wants to send us one for exactly. game. Uh, but before we do that, there's one quote I definitely want to get into about Machiavelli. Did you, did you guys see that one where he said, okay, I'll just read it from the book. 
Machiavelli, an unemployed politician slash civil servant who hoped to become a hired hand of the Medici family, that is perhaps the Robert Rizzo of his day, wrote The Prince to demonstrate his value as an advisor. It seems the Medicis were not overly impressed. He didn't land the job. <laughs> this made me think of just like, you know, people writing essays, right, online to like attract attention for future fundraising or for getting a job and stuff. It's like Machiavelli is one of the originals. Right. Machiavelli <laughs> was one of the original word cells. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't realize he wrote it like not as an employee. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know the context of him writing it. I haven't read it either, but I know generally like what it's about from what I've well, I, heard at least. I, I think some people think it. he wrote it as satire too. I've heard that <laughs> argument as well. That's awesome. But I don't know. He's a comedian. Know well. That's why he we didn't could, get the job. <laughs> we could add it to our list. Cool. All right. All right. Adil. Going through the now rules. Us, We're going to actually talk track. about the book. All right. Adil's in charge. We, we need we somebody just, to be the adult here. We should here. start the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, hey, we've like read some quotes. We're like talking about content. Man, geez. Invite this guy to a couple episodes. Shows up on the podcast, tells you what to do. Uh, <laughs> all right. The five rules. I'll read all five and then we can dive into the first. Yep. Yes, that's good. So, rule one, <laughs> keep your winning coalition as small as possible. These are the five rules to be an autocrat as defined in this book. Keep your winning coalition as small as possible. Rule two, keep the nominal selectorate as large as possible because a large selectorate permits a big supply of substitute supporters to put the essentials on notice that they should be loyal or they'll be replaced. Rule three, control the money. Rule four, pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal, but not more. And rule five, don't take money out of your supporters' pockets to make the people's lives better. Those are the core pieces of the book. So when we hop into uh, keeping the winning coalition as small as possible. I mean, I think the the point, like one of the biggest points they're trying to make with rule one uh, is it's easier to bribe i guess or not i guess bribe or pay off or, or keep your your supporters happy when that winning coalition that basically that's the group that you need to actually get power and then stay in power, stay in power um, yeah. if it's a smaller group you know they gave this example of like i don't know if this is in the book or not it's not in my notes but i remember it being like if you have you know some pot of money and you need to divide that between 10 people or a thousand people right let's say a million dollars between 10 people or a thousand people, it's going to be much more impactful on an individual basis on, with the 10 people. With well, a thousand people, the, it's going to be a much smaller amount. That was the example with like Saudi Arabia versus Turkey during the yeah. US invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq, where basically like we ended up staging most of it out of Saudi Arabia because it was way easier to bribe Saudi Arabia than Turkey because Turkey was democratized enough that the number of people the money would have to go to to make happy was so much larger. Whereas in Saudi Arabia, you only had to pay off like five or 10 people in total. So it was much easier to buy support there than in a more democratic nation like Turkey. Yep. So if you're trying to keep power, you know, uh, take or keep power, then the having a small coalition is is definitely to your advantage. I found the example of like a CEO and their board pretty good for this too, yep. where he was talking about uh, Carly Fiorina at HP and how she basically like downsized the board considerably once she became CEO, because it was originally like 13 or 14 people. And she cut it down to nine or 10 by mostly removing people from outside the company who didn't already like her. 
which meant there were now fewer people she needed to keep happy in order to like stay in power. Whereas as a shareholder, you want more board members and more shareholder control because it means that the CEO has to act more in like the best interest of everyone versus when there's a small board with like all the voting power, the CEO only has to make five people happy. It's kind of like what we see now a lot of times with like founders retaining like super voting shares. So they might only own like 5% of the company, but they still have, you know, 55% of the voting power with their like special shares. And that's another another good way to kind of like tilt the scale in your favor. And the other thing it signals is like, I'm in charge. Like I will come, I will move people around. I'll get rid of folks who don't support me. And then it's a warning to new people on the team. The example they, or as a small detail, I believe they mentioned there that I, that stood out to me was folks who usually organize a coup. So a board member who organizes a coup on a CEO is generally the first to go with the new CEO, even if they supported the new CEO, because they now know that this is someone who's willing to sow discontent. Well, that was the, uh, the Saddam Hussein and the bath party example, right? Where he like, it's crazy. Yeah. He like organized all these people to help him overthrow the government. And then he killed most of them. Because well, then he, didn't he like bring them into an auditorium and then yeah, he like, like brought them into an yeah what is it brings them into an auditorium and then like calls forward 60 or 70 yeah. of them and it like has them executed in front of everyone else something like that yeah, that was yeah. the craziest story yeah that but was the, nuts so people want if you're in the winning coalition you want it to be small but you don't want to be the one killed to make it small so yeah, uh, yeah. i think later in the book they mentioned that like towards the end of the bath party like whatever that event was, uh, where they, where Saddam like, took people out and killed them, the folks who were still alive were like starting to cheer because they had basically figured out that they were going to make it. So as yeah. they're like, yeah. That they were part were of that winning, down. that they were part of that winning small coalition. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So as the, fun as uh, it sounds, be careful if you get invited to any bath parties. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This needs to be like classified as a <laughs> sort of comedy podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, this is a sidebar, but um, or a tangent. Actually, why am I saying sidebar? What show is this? Uh, when I was when I was like signing up for the Spotify analytics, they let you like pick the category, mm-hmm. and so I did like I don't know. I did like education, and I think Nat, you had done some originally. So there were some that were already in there. Yeah, I had no idea what to pick. And then like, but there's like a limit. And I was like, I want to do more of these. Like, I want to do more than two. I think I wanted to yeah. put like comedy in there too. But education, no, I mean, history, current events, comedy. Philosophy, comedy, yeah. <laughs> just all of the above. It's everything. Math, everything. science, <laughs> politics, <laughs> dictatorships. I don't know if that's a category. All right. Should we talk about rule two? Uh, yeah, let me add one thing on rule one that I... I, I didn't realize this before the book. I, I think it's very obvious once it's said, but I just never heard it so plainly, which was, quote, to understand politics properly, we must modify one assumption in particular. We must stop thinking that leaders can act unilaterally. And then the three things they need in particular are a police force to quell the public, a military to maintain power, avoid invasion, so on, and then a treasury to pay everybody. And then someone who's going to basically be the treasurer who is there in between. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see, like, there are so many institutions in government, but this is really what it boils down to, to accumulate and maintain power, police, military, and treasury. It's kind of like the, the whole sovereign individual thing, right? It's like when you get down to it, a government is just a monopoly on violence. 
And, you know, the ways to retain that monopoly are, you know, the people who will execute the violence and the funds to, you know, continue to pay them to do it. And everything else is kind of just like dressings. Which is interesting because the the other thing that he had, because so the book is jokingly written as a handbook for wannabe dictators. So the other piece of air quotes advice is you should underpay your police force because that gives them leeway to be corrupt and that corruption gives them potentially greater upside than a salary and gives yeah. you leverage over the corrupt person. So it's like this win-win where you keep more money and you get leverage and they're happier. But yeah, the, I, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, I've got the quotation from the book here. It's really good. Uh, For many leaders, corruption is not something bad that needs to be eliminated. Rather, it is an essential political tool. Leaders implicitly or sometimes even explicitly condone corruption. Effectively, they license the right to extract bribes from the citizens. This avoids the administrative headache of organizing taxation and transferring the funds to supporters. I hadn't thought about it before like that, but it actually makes a lot of sense when you frame it that way. Yeah, yeah, it, make, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense. And then you see it so much in other countries. Like, and I mean, I don't, I, from what I've read, you used to definitely see it in the Western world a lot more too. Um, I would guess it still exists. You still some, see it. We're just a little level. subtler yeah. about it now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think at least this is, I don't know if the, how this relates to the rules in the book, but I feel like there is a lot of, uh, still a lot of corruption, right? In the Western world. It's just on a bigger scale in many, many ways, right? Like the grifts are not like, paying the policeman 10 rupees or something, right? To like let you off from a ticket. It's like, how do we get this government contract for $3 billion to build like, I don't know, a road that's five miles long? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the grifts are of a scale that are just much, much larger. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you call those corrupt or just like, you know, uh, paying essential supporters or something. Like maybe that's a, a way to pay a supporter is get them a, a nice sized government contract. Maybe. I don't, I don't know which bucket that would fall into, but there's grift in kind of every society. The, the one thing that I thought I, I kind of wish they had discussed more in the book was uh, informational asymmetry between members of the winning coalition and leadership and the nominal mm. uh, selectorate. Because if you think of like the example of grift you just gave, Neil, that only really exists because it's not that you can't find it. It's that it's sufficiently difficult to discover and track those things to see whether or not they're legit, that it's effectively an informational asymmetry. Uh, this is one area where like my mind immediately gravitates to crypto where it's the informational asymmetry is, I mean, still imperfect, but significantly more accessible. And you can like find things much faster. Like where, where is the money and where is it going is not like a quarterly or annual thing. It's this immediate. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be surprised like with, um, with larger companies, I mean, the the information asymmetry even internally is uh, quite a lot. Like, I mean, not this might not be true in every company, but in most companies, it's not like the CEO just has like a dashboard that they can see like, oh, how much did we sell, you know, and then dive into different regions and different individual stores. Let's say it's like a retailer, you know, which particular SKUs did we sell? It's like not yeah. that simple. Well, it's not that it's not that transparent, I should say. It's not it is it might actually be that simple from a data standpoint, but it's not that transparent, probably because the people running the individual groups don't want it to be that transparent, I would imagine. Yeah. It's uh, legibility. Yeah. It's gonna be yep. our next book topic. Yep. Uh, and then you also have this when you have an overwhelming amount of information where now you have mm. so much information, it's hard to tell signal from noise. It's the same thing like internally at a company, you connect metrics on everything. 
and there's a number tied to everything. And all of a sudden, like building a dashboard just to find the data and know what it means becomes this insurmountable problem. And then you don't have visibility in your own org. But I think that's part of the news cycle problem, actually, with like why someone like Warren might want to say crazy things to land in the news is like you basically immediately cut noise and you get attention on yourself. And then as a reader of such things, you are you're the victim of like the thing that is loudest is not necessarily highest signal. And there's right. simply too much to parse for signal. So you've solved the informational asymmetry, but like it's actually a bell curve and now there's too much and you actually end up in the same place where you started, where you have little to no information. That should make a lot of sense. It reminds me of the, uh, that, um, whatever that meme is with like the mid, the midwit person and then the like yeah. genius and the idiot. It's like <laughs> somebody who is some, so the ver- a deal like what you just said the that meme version of this would be somebody who's like illiterate and can't read the news like literally cannot read the news and then there's like somebody who is just super smart and is is super smart to know that they shouldn't read the news yeah and they they both like don't know what's going on in the world in terms of like current (laughs) events and the middle person is like a chicken with their head cut off chasing after every single little uh signal slash noise that comes across this was one of the biggest changes in my life and that you'll remember this from like 2014 where we had this disagreement on the value of keeping up with the news and i have yeah. since i was so wrong in that disagreement and i have since like, so was i i used to be that way too <laughs> i have completely cut from my diet and like most days i have no clue what's going on unless the news breaks into crypto twitter in which case it shows up in my feed by some miracle that is truly a minor miracle when it breaks into my feed. <laughs> It's great. It, it's it's remarkable how much more informed you are without consuming all that information. <laughs> I love it. So, all right, should we get to right, rule, rule two? two? Rule two: Keep your nominal selectorate as large as possible. So, the main idea here is the larger the nominal selectorate is, while the winning coalition is small, you're effectively sending a message to your immediate circle of supporters that they are highly replaceable. My favorite example of this was like, why would somebody hold a rigged election? And everyone knows the election is rigged. It's not meant to convince the members or the voting members of an autocratic country that it's legit. It's actually meant to send a message to the in-between layer who is getting air quotes voted on that at any point in time, we might rig the election the other way and you'll actually lose. So is this like, is the rigged election thing kind of like, um, let's say like you see, I don't know, in an autocratic country, like I I remember seeing like Russia has an election. It'll be like Putin wins 99% to 1% or something like that. So it's- uh, Is that what you're talking about? uh, But for uh, folks who are not at the top tier. So let's say you have like your second layer of like governors and other folks who you need to be your cronies. You want to make sure you keep them in line. So you basically have this periodic reminder that, hey, like here's this thing that is total BS. It's rigged, but- it will determine whether or not you get to continue another term. And we might just rig it the other way in the event that your support falters. Or we just don't like you for one reason or the other, or you don't play ball. Yeah. We can, yeah. Like we have the power to turn it one way or the other. Really interesting signaling mechanism because it's just, it's another one of these uh, counterintuitive things that from the outside, I had, before reading this book, had no idea why anyone would do this. And I don't think if somebody had forced me to guess, I would have come up with this reason. Uh, it's sort of like the corruption one or like the foreign aid example. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, from a, like a dictator's shadow perspective, right? Cause I think there's that kind of like additional element to this book of, okay, you, 
like in many ways, perhaps the way to thrive in a dictatorship is not to be the dictator because then you have this like big target on your back. It's to be a highly irreplaceable member of the winning coalition, right? And so then kind of like looking at this is like, okay, your your goal is not only to be be in the winning coalition, but also to be like to not there to not be a nominal selectorate of people who could replace you, right? Yeah. Where there's kind of this element of like the the people in the bath party who get drowned are probably the ones who like we're just providing like thank you deal uh we're just providing you know some brute force manpower some like replaceable money right but like core strategists or something would be the ones who make it you know this can definitely apply to like businesses and other like non-political entities as well uh and so if you're like in a situation that is in like some form of dictatorship right like the best way to protect yourself is by keeping the coalition of people who could replace you as small as possible. So you actually have like the each the, the top node is the perspective of the book, which is the dictator and then their coalitions. But then each person in their coalition has their coalitions. And it's like these mm-hmm. triangles yeah. placed on top of one another. Uh, I don't remember if this was in the book about the Ottoman Empire and their eunuchs. So the sultans would have eunuchs. Oh, this who sounds their familiar. Most, yeah. Yeah, their most irreplaceable advisors. Because it's actually really tough to be irreplaceable. Because then you might become a threat, right? Because you you by virtue of being irreplaceable, then you might just get killed off. So well, you say irreplaceable. Yeah. You got to be irreplaceable, but also relatively anonymous. Like not pop, not yeah. have a big enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, like there's the uh, the example from Cuba where uh, Justin Trudeau's father uh, exiled Che Guevara, um, and if you didn't catch that, Fidel, uh, obviously. Fidel exiled Che Guevara because he was too popular and you know he was a very from everything I've read about him he was pretty essential uh to the coalition but he started getting like feeling threatened that you know this guy's getting more popular than me and he died outside of Cuba like he was basically exiled I don't know if they called it an exile but he basically sent him out of Cuba and then never you know never let him come back and so that's a case where you know here's a guy who literally was like essential to the revolution essential to the point where like, I mean, from things I've read about Che, it was like, he was in large part, a a big reason why they got the kind of support that they did basically was the right hand. And then after, you know, a number of years, it was like, oh, this guy's too popular. He's got to go. He's probably lucky he didn't get killed to be honest. Like he was probably too pop. Like, yeah. I mean, he's probably very lucky that he got exiled instead of just like killed in a boating accident or something that could have death. I could see that for all the autocratic examples that they gave in the book, like there's so many other instances of just brutal murders. Uh, yeah. So, so the Rasputin story is kind of a good one yeah. too, right? Yep. Where it's like they kept sending him away and then calling him back and then sending him away and calling him back. And then eventually they were like, all right, fuck it. We're just going to kill you. But like, even that was hard. Right? So like you kind of, you want to be like just below that threshold of importance and attention. I think Adil's point about the eunuchs though is a really good one because they weren't threatening in the way that like, you know, some other p- political rival would be. Yeah. And they were still essential, right? Like, for, Was, wasn't that's that why in they the made book, them essential. Or is that in another book we're reading where it was like the one time they appointed a non eunuch into a position of power, it like went really poorly? Is that no, story? I, that doesn't Gosh, sound familiar. Okay. The wrapper the around these two rules of like how to accumulate power, the, the thing that I find most fascinating, because 
then once you accumulate power, it's all about maintaining power, is that the transition from one ruler to a next, like mm. the book almost starts as like, hey, you're the dictator. This is the start of your story. But your story is actually part of this bigger story with someone on the way out, unless you're feeling like a true power vacuum. And that transition from one ruler to the next is this like immensely chaotic period where the previous winning coalition is in like disarray over who will live, who will die, who will help. Should you jump ship? Should you not jump ship? Uh, and they're very eager to find someone new who will support them. So the uh, there's this like mutual, it's almost like dating. It's like dictatorial dating between like members of the winning coalition, the existing dictator, and then the new prospect. The Ottoman example of like when the Sultan would die and the sons would then uh, race back to the capital and then kill each other. And the last one standing would be the next Sultan. And that was just like, what the process was to pick the next leader. Do you guys remember this part? No. It was, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was in this book. Uh, but yeah, just such a crazy thing. And like the Sultan kind of knew that like, this was, I'll, I'll find the word for it. Give, give me a second. I don't know if it was in this book, but I feel like I've read that story before or like that process. Fratricide, killing of sons and brothers in the Ottoman You know what? I think that was yeah. in this. I think that was in the book. Yeah. Well, and animals do that too, which is wild. Like, yeah, I, I know I've read about like uh, I think lions, right? Will kill like other. But is it lions or is it? Uh, yeah, if a, if a lion takes over uh, pride, they'll kill all the cubs of the females in the in the pride to make sure that it's one of their offspring that ends up taking over, and it also apparently puts all the female lions into heat. So that's probably kind of fun for them. That's the surface reason, and then there's the power yeah, reason. Yeah, there's the power reason. <laughs> So the third rule is control the flow of revenue. I think it yeah, was the Liberia cool story one. where there was a transition of power. And I'm going to forget the names and the details here because there are so many stories. But the outgoing dictator who was being captured and is getting slowly tortured and mutilated, having his ears cut off and nose cut off. The new guy is, the question he's asking him is, where is the money? Yeah. And he just takes it with him to the grave. I really wonder if they ever recovered any of that. I don't think they did because I think that person who took over, like it fell apart pretty quickly because they couldn't find the money. So they couldn't pay any supporters or anything. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. They have the example from Zimbabwe, uh, which I'll just read from the book where he didn't know, or sorry, he didn't know how to make money for the country, but he knew who to pay to kind of stay in power. So this is from the book. It says, Consider Robert Mugabe's success in staying on as Zimbabwe's president. The economy has collapsed in Zimbabwe thanks to Mugabe's terrible policies. Starvation is common and epidemics of cholera regularly sweep the country. Mugabe succeeds because he understands that it does not matter what happens to the people, provided that he makes sure to pay the army. It's basically how he stays in power. He knows yeah. that as long as he has enough money to pay the army, he's good. I think the other thing related to like control the, the flow of money rule that was really, at least to me, was enlightening, is it's a huge incentive to borrow as much money as you possibly can. Basically, as much as you can get away with. Like, why would you not, actually? When you look at it through this lens, it's like, if somebody is willing to give you money, you actually should, because the consequences will probably be someone else's problem. Well, yeah, that, that was like the example they gave, where as Nigeria, I think, as their like oil and mineral wealth increased, their debt actually increased as well. Because they, as they became wealthier, they weren't like paying down their debt. They were using their wealth as additional collateral to take out more and more debt. So the problem only got worse as they got wealthier. 
who would do that? Certainly not a civilized country like the U.S. <laughs> when debt exceeds the ability to pay, the problem for a leader is not so much that good public works must be cut back, but rather that the incumbent doesn't have the resources necessary to purchase political loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's pretty amazing. Like you really have to walk away from any notion of public good. It's like because he, they don't actually they're not actually opinionated on whether or not a dictator is necessarily bad, because you could actually be very interested in accumulating and maintaining power, but less interested in self-enrichment, which would allow you to invest in public works, so long as you don't take money away from uh, your key supporters. So actually the trade-off is, oftentimes they talk about the trade-off as between your key supporters and public works. Uh, But really, if you are a benevolent dictator, you could actually flip that trade-off, make it instead be between yourself and your self-enrichment and public works because your self-enrichment is the only thing from the treasury that you're trying to maximize. Everything else is a minimization story. You want to pay your key supporters the minimal amount. Uh, so minimal you can maximize. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 They give the Singapore example, right. As like kind of a counterpoint of like a benevolent dictator. Yeah. Singapore and uh, recent China. Yeah. Where they've at least, they've at least managed to uh, kind of increase the country's wealth as well as well as themselves, of course, and enriching the, the key supporters, of course, too. But but yeah, but they have, as a side effect, still like Singapore, at least as the example that stuck out in my in my mind, they've kind of, despite being an autocratic regime, like they still created a pretty thriving society. Something that stood out to me quite a bit in this section of like treasury and taxation is like, so you want to maximize taxation while maintaining productivity if you're an autocratic country with no natural resources, because you need to convince people to work so you can charge them taxes, so you can enrich yourself and pay off your supporters. Same thing goes for non-autocratic societies. If you tax too much, people don't work as much. I don't know very much about Europe other than like, I know they have like slightly higher taxes. I know they have like better public works programs, but I always see the numbers around like unemployment and productivity being much lower than the United States. And I've always wondered like, is that just, you know, they're culturally more advanced than us and they recognize that there's more to life than work or is it a incentives thing? Like, does it actually boil down to this exact same thing of like the productivity just isn't worth it? Like the marginal hour of, of work isn't, yeah. like you're not getting anything from that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for people, I'd be curious to hear, you know, some perspectives on this from people in Europe, right? But it's sort of like if your goal is to like, work as hard as possible and make as much money as possible. Like you'd kind of be stupid to stay in Europe, right? Cause like the incentives just aren't there for it. Right. Which is like why I, which is why I think some of the crypto stuff is interesting because I work with a lot more international people now than I like ever have before. And I think it's probably because like, despite Europe having like worse taxation laws on a lot of things, like certain parts of Europe have much friendlier, like crypto tax laws. Mm-hmm. And so now we're yeah. seeing like a lot more innovation come out of Europe in this very specific niche where the laws are super favorable. Right. It's like, I've never talked to or worked with anybody in Portugal for like my entire online life. And now suddenly I have a lot of friends in Portugal yeah. who are like incredibly productive. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like, Oh, weirdly enough, it's the European country where your crypto gains are tax free. Right. Like, that that can't be a coincidence, right? Yeah. So, yeah, well, that's an guess example on my mind too. Like their yeah. new tax scheme is extremely favorable to crypto. Yeah. Yep. 
I mean, if the US and the US has like literally the worst tax scheme of like any country in the world for crypto related stuff, because it doesn't so matter where China. you go. Well, yeah, <laughs> China might actually be better because like, you know, I would rather be able to just like bribe somebody and not have to That's worry true. about it. Like, I mean, with China, you can at least don't try this country. at home with if you're right, listening like, to this in China somehow. Don't try this at home. <laughs> But like, like in China, you can leave, and I don't think you have to keep paying Chinese income taxes if you. That's probably true. Domiciled yeah. in China, right? Like, it's it's literally the U.S. and like one random country in Africa are the only countries where that's true. So, yep. like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that is um, kind of messed up. Um, Joe needs his ice cream. <laughs> pay him no matter where we go. Uh, there's, there's actually, so this brings up a really good point. Is as I was reading that section. There's a there's there's a quotation from here which I'll read in a second, but it got me thinking of like how much of uh, world history is just this like cat and mouse game of taxation and people trying to evade taxes basically or like escape to a different tax jurisdiction, right? Like yeah, you could argue the U.S. being formed was in large like at least a significant part uh, was because of tax issues with the with the British. Well, um, yeah, that, this is my other like. Sort of like the the genetic theory of entrepreneurship, which is like anybody with anybody with European ancestry who had like entrepreneurial drive probably like left Europe to come to America mm. because you know it was like that was the crazy entrepreneurial thing to do for a hundred fifty year period, and so that's why Americans are like so fucking insane because like you literally would have had to be an insane person yeah. to like get on a ship, very high chance of death, go to like an unknown country and be like, yeah, this is a good idea. Like, fuck it. I'm gonna bring my kids. What could go wrong? Yeah. Uh, and like that, that's, that's all of our genetic makeup, right? Like that's where a lot of us came from. So it's like, of course we're, we're crazy. And like, there's more of an entrepreneurial, like genetic base here, but I don't know if that actually checks out. It's just a fun idea. Yeah. Kind of like the aquatic apes theory. Exactly. <laughs> really fun. I don't want to find out. Really fun. I don't know if it's true, but it's I more like fun. It. Life's more fun when you think that's possible. So yeah, we'll, we'll, I don't want to look too much you into it. Yeah, it seems like that's most of science these days. You know, yeah. Believe, believe whatever makes the most sense to you. <laughs> All right, back to the book before <laughs> I go on a tangent there. <laughs> uh, All right, so this one he's talking about, or they're talking about. I think this is with the caliphate right? Where he's talking about how there were taxes levied, more taxes levied on non-Muslims. So this is straight oh, from yeah. the books. It says, it seems that many non-Muslims realizing that they could reduce the tax collector's reach by becoming Muslim, put their rel religious beliefs aside and converted. As long as these conversions did not assume massive proportions, the tax farmers made themselves incredibly rich at the expense of the average citizen. When conversion became commonplace, tax farmers adjusted no longer excluding Muslims from some of the taxes that they levied. And from the perspective of the caliph, this ensured reliable revenue. That they terrorized the people was of no political importance. Impoverished and persecuted farmers were not part of the winning coalition. So it's like, if you also think about like conversion, uh, or sorry, like uh, religious migrations right around the world, like especially, I think like, especially with the like Islamic empires during those years, a lot of it was probably tax driven you know, people can, populations converting, they were conquered. You know, I think a lot of the Muslim uh, empires did not do like a very sort of authoritarian rule in the sense of like, we're going to, you know, have large standing armies in every single place that we conquer, but they used tributes and, and taxes as kind of a way of control. 
Actually, the Romans, I think, did a lot of that too in terms of uh, taxes rather than doing direct rule. Because it's yeah, hard. I mean, how are you going to how are you going to rule over the whole world? You know, wh- where are you going to get the people to go do that in every single jurisdiction that you take over? Tax farming was something I learned about like while studying the Roman Empire like a year, year and a half ago, and it's just just shocked me that like that concept could even exist because it's so fucked up. It's like the way it works is the uh, central leadership, the central authority wants a certain amount of taxes. So a bunch of tax farmers, which are just like people who will go out and collect the taxes, show up and they say, here's how much I'll give you from this region. And a few people bid for the region. They'll go to the central authority and say, actually, I'll get you more taxes from that region or more or more. And whoever has the highest bid gets selected and they get to be the tax authority for that region. Then they go there and their incentive to do this is that they can charge even more in taxes for people living in that area and they keep the difference. So basically everybody except the subjects is massively enriched and all the incentives are extremely perverse in like favor of stupidly high tax rates. What I don't understand about it is this also happens in places where they don't have very good natural resources. So for the Romans, for example, like a lot of the economy was driven by like plunder and slavery. So productivity from taxpayers wasn't as big of a deal. That was a huge issue for them later on uh, when their democracies began to crumble. But like, for example, for you know, the caliphate, I, I don't understand how that actually worked itself out. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't give a whole lot of details in here, but uh, on that particular part, but I, I'm curious about that too. It also reminded me of like, this was just reminded me of one of, I've gone to Scotland a couple of times and on one of the, one of the trips, I asked the question, why are so many distilleries in like the highlands, right? Like, Scotland's a pretty big place. The Highlands is just one kind of re- small region and it's pretty inaccessible. Like it's accessible to us because we have cars and stuff, right? But like, if you think about a pre-car era, if you were going up these highland, you know, these massive hills and mountains with a horse, like it's a huge pain in the butt to get there. So I was like, why are all these distilleries up here? They're all like 300 years old or more. And the reason was all about taxes. So basically all these distilleries would pretend not to be distilleries and because they're built up on like large hills, they could see the tax collector coming from like miles <laughs> away. And they would just like swap out equipment while the person is oh, like hilarious. on their way up. And they told us that at a couple of different of uh, the distilleries. But it's um it's kind of again goes back to the cat and mouse game, right? It's like they chose to That's build so there amazing. because they didn't want to get taxed. <laughs> yeah. I love That's that. That's incredible. There are so many creative ways to steal money. Like the Burmese exchange rate story blew my mind. Basically, the Dictators and dictator in Burma, whose name I'm going to forget now, had two exchange rates. There was the real exchange rate between their currency and the dollar, which was something like 100 to 1. And then there was a locked-in exchange rate for the rest of the population, which was like 1 to 6. So they would get paid in dollars, swap it at the real exchange rate, which was highly favorable to them, and then pocket like a 85% difference. This is like uh, this big thing in Argentina too. There's basically two exchange rates. There's like the quote unquote official exchange rate. Then there's the street exchange rate. And so if you go to like an official government sanctioned money, not translator, what is it? Converter, then you're, you're losing a lot of money. And there's like just people on the streets who will do the exchanges for like a way better deal because at least this was true for a while. I don't know if it's still true or not. It was just like the government was taking a cut basically which is another reason why crypto is so popular there, it sounds. I just oh. need a good, a good AMM. What's an AMM? 
automated market maker. So like oh, Uniswap yeah, 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 or SushiSwap. Yeah, yeah. So yep. Yep. Um, your USDC to USD or to ASD, Argentinian state dollars, whatever. What I was going to say is I've heard anecdotally, you guys probably know if this is true or, or completely off base, but I've heard anecdotally, like the price of Bitcoin can be different in different countries. Like it's not what is on the exchange based on like how hard or how easy it is to actually buy Bitcoin in that country. It's probably um, true. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if those, I mean, a lot of those ARBs have been like played out. Like you can definitely still get ARBs on smaller volume tokens, but mm. I'd be surprised if those. I guess because Bitcoin's such a liquid one now, like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be tricky to do that. Yeah. I had heard something similar. Again, I never verified this, so I, it could be totally wrong, but it intuitively makes sense. In I think I heard about about Venezuela, where the local currency is devalued so rapidly that even if the uh, street conversion rate between local currency and Bitcoin is not as favorable as going online, the fact that it's not traceable by the government and the fact that that's uh, what I mean, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, still better than the devaluation. It means that it's actually a good deal for everyone involved. Yeah, I think it's like in countries where it's like more restricted and speed is also very important to uh, to get that converted because it's like, I mean, a rapidly collapsing currency. I heard actually, uh, Adil, I heard this in about Turkey recently, too. It was like a few a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, the lira has dropped by what like sixty yeah. percent over the last five years. Something crazy. I thought it was even more. It's really, yeah, bad. it might be more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's a number of people who I work with or I'm friends with in South America now who all work in crypto. And it's like, again, I'd never made friends with colleagues in South America until the last year, but yeah, they're all like deep in it. And I mean, they're literally like paying for their entire family's like lifestyle off of like the crazy money they can make in crypto. And then they just like, don't keep anything in their local currency because it's just so unstable. Uh, they just cash out enough to like pay their local bills and then leave everything else in USDC mostly or UST. It's interesting. Like Terra is huge in South America because it's it's such a better payment rails than anything local, and it's a way cheaper payment rails than doing anything on like an ETH chain. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm now talking to a lot of people stateside who are thinking about their money this way, where they basically yeah. have. I was telling Neil about it, where they have like yeah, we've had this on. conversation. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> risk on and risk off money, and like mm-hmm. risk off money is just. Hey, this isn't a bank account. It's in dollars. I'm allowing it to devalue, but it's not locked up in an asset. So if I need to use it, I don't get taxed. And this is where I draw most of my living expenses from. And then the risk on money is just like everything else. And that's like the vast majority of everything that you don't need to survive in the next six months. And most people I've talked to that risk on account has no dollars in it or very minimal dollars in it. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's crazy too, because it's like the banking system doesn't make it any easier, right? Like, I started transferring some money out of crypto because we're like moving houses and I have to pay taxes and like all this shit. And like, I did the first transaction and like, thankfully I have a like relationship with a banker at Chase and the literally, I think it was like two days after I did that transaction, I got an email from him. It was like, Hey Nat, like just checking in, like hope everything is okay. And I was like, I haven't heard from you in over a year. And now like suddenly you're like reaching out and, but I've heard from a lot of people that their bank accounts just get shut down. Yep. I was just going to say, I've heard they get flagged as high risk. And yeah, exactly. And shut I'm, it down. I'm yep. certain that's what happened is that like our account got flagged for doing a transfer. And then like, luckily, you know, 
we were you know, fine, but a lot of people, they just get shut down they get like debanked. And it's like, you're literally like trying to pay your taxes <laughs> in your bank the account. The thing that's wild to me about this, the thing that's wild to me about this is the number of banks that have got, like all this is tied to like KYC and anti-money laundering laws. And this is yeah. like what they're worried about with crypto. But like so many major banks have gotten in trouble for actually helping people money launder. I know. Like it's, <laughs> there's so many cases of it, of like working with the cartels, working with like billionaires. I mean, there's just so many people, sorry, sorry, not so many people, so many banks that have gotten caught for this. It's, it's okay just like, they do it. Well, know. that's what I'm saying. It's they like, want, what they is want, the They need their cut. Yeah, that might be what it is, right? It's like crypto is, is disrupting them in the sense that like you don't need uh, Deutsche Bank to like help you money launder anymore. <laughs> they don't. They don't like that you're making your own winning coalition. You know. Yep. You, you got to be, be part of theirs. Could be that. Transition powers are always tumultuous. Should we do uh, rule four? Rule four: do it. Pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal, but not more. So the idea here being every penny that you give to your key supporters that goes beyond buying their loyalty is money you could instead be spending either enriching yourself or in the rare case of a benevolent dictator, paying for public goods, but mostly enriching yourself, as is the theme in this book. The, uh, the, the, the thing in the treasury and taxation section uh, that we didn't talk about that I really loved was the... Oil rich nations or like natural resource rich nations. Oh, yeah. They don't democratize. Live in poverty. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was huge to me because, like, I mean, a little bit from personal experience, just having spent a decent amount of time in the Middle East, even in a place like Saudi Arabia, which I, I don't really understand all that well outside of like, you know, a short visit where I was there, but they have tremendous wealth. And it's very clear that, you know, the winning coalition, the royal family have these insanely great lives. And there are parts of the country that don't even have like properly paved roads between like pretty major areas. And uh, I found that to be very surprising when I was there. There was even like a few places we went to. I don't think this was a norm necessarily throughout the country, but it was surprising to me that it was possible at any place in the country where we found that a liter of gasoline was cheaper than a liter of water. Wow. Yeah. Well, but Again, are they largely the everywhere, but like that is a crazy thing to happen anywhere. Yeah. Are they largely a desert, uh, desert climate? Uh, as I understand it, I, I only went yep. to like three or four cities, so I, I can't speak for everything. Yep. But yeah, you're, I mean, that sort of like, I guess, inequality or that sort of, um, yeah. uh, I guess, dichotomy, right? In the types of types of lives. I mean, I, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia, but I've been to, uh, to Dubai and it's kind of similar, right? Like, I mean, Dubai is, is super, super wealthy, on one level of society. And then you kind of have like a slave class on the other level of society where you can't even, there is zero path for you to become a citizen or even your kids, I think, to become citizens, except for one, like there's like one potential way that, that can happen, at least according to the the uh, driver I was talking to. But um, you truly do have like two, two stra um, like two levels, I guess, of society. And the people who are sort of in that uh, winning coalition or that in, in group, right? I mean, it's a great deal for them. There's like no income taxes, you know, incredibly safe, wealthy society. But if you're not in that group, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. And the 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 idea that like is uh, parallel to all this that was briefly mentioned in the book, but really stood out to me because I've heard it from family in the area is when someone is 
kind of preaching like a higher ideal, like democracy or some moral framework or so on, you should be extremely suspicious and really look for the power plays there. And I think in, I mean, certainly in like Saudi Arabia and Iran, that is basically the name of the game, right? It's like the preservation of these really important holy sites and so on. And then you look at like the insane amount of wealth that the top classes have and uh, just what everybody else gets is peanuts. Well, this was my kind of like cynical take reading the book and thinking about the whole like American intervention in the Middle East, right? Is we we look at that and we look at us like pulling out of Afghanistan and everything. And we say like, oh, the U.S. like failed because, you know, it, it didn't become democratic. We didn't like get the changes we wanted. But kind of like reading this book, like maybe we actually succeeded because we ensured like a continuation of chaos and instilled like a very small group or allowed a very small group of like leaders to emerge whom we could like sufficiently influence in order to continue securing like inexpensive oil and like power for us in the region. And it's like the only reason that the US dollar like remains the world reserve currency is the petrodollar. So like if we don't control the oil anymore, then we're no longer the world's reserve currency and people will just like dump dollars for pounds or anything else. And so it's actually good for us to not have it be democratic over there. Right. Like in the sense of it's easier to control if it's not it's easier democratic. to control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's so. that whole section on, on the foreign aid area yeah, where yeah. they talk about, I don't know if that's in this part or, or later, but they talk about, um, uh, how uh, a dictatorship is just so much easier to control from a foreign aid perspective than a than a democracy. And I think like one really simple example would be if you have to bribe, again, bribe like 3 million people who are all part of the selectorate of a country versus bribe a dictator and his 10 key supporters. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to bribe those dictators and 10 key supporters. And so because of that, democracies and to be fair, they do call out democracies on this one, where they say democracies actually tend to like other countries being dictatorships because they're easier to control. Yeah, um, that was that was a, a really good call out for me. I, I hadn't put that together before. And so, Nat, to your point with the Middle East, like that chaos might actually be a strategic benefit. Like if Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or any of these countries became like truly stable democracies, well, they're no longer under American control as much right well they'd have like incredible with, currency power yeah yeah what were you gonna say ideal egypt uh yeah it's like egypt and israel oh yes yeah that exactly yeah, yeah. too yep when we had dictatorships in egypt we could enforce better behavior towards israel and then when they started democratizing it became clear that the population was still not pro-israel and then it threw that relationship at risk Actually, do you guys know what the current state of Egypt is? Like, I haven't really looked at what's happened there the last five years. No, I haven't kept up I on don't. it either. Because yeah. it's interesting. There was like the 2011 wave uh, where a bunch of these places tried to democratize. And then Googling it. there's this huge mixed bag. And we were left with like power vacuums in certain areas. But yeah. I don't remember the final tally. It's officially the, it's officially the Arab Republic of Egypt. <laughs> Let's see. Present. Looks like they have at least a nominal democracy. They had an election. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know. I, I probably would have to go beyond Wikipedia to know, like, like the strength of the democracy. But it looks like they've had elections since at least 2014. Well, yeah, because there was like... the... When was the Arab Spring? 2011, I think, right? Yeah, 2011. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> 11 years ago. Jeez. And then there was the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt after that. And it looks like there was a lot of public discontent with them and they got kind of overthrown. After which it looks like some of the, actually an army, like their commander in chief of the Egyptian armed forces announced he would be a candidate for president. I think they had an election. Uh, there were some other people that ran, but it looks like he won. And I think he's still the, the president, LCC. That's his name. The Economist uh, Democracy Index ranks Egypt as 127th most democratic out of 170. So. Yeah, but where do they rank Canada? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 127th out of 170 isn't exactly crushing it. Let me take a closer yeah. look. Well, I think part of it, too, is like if the head of the army is the guy who wins the election, sometimes like at least I know I don't know as much about Egypt, but like looking at Pakistan's history, right, it's very much like the army takes power, then they'll give power back to the civilians, but it better be like, they better elect somebody that the army approves of. Well, and so it's like, is that really an election or not? Right. I think it's it depends like, on the like, Egypt in 2018 is labeled authoritarian with an overall score of 3.36. And to put that in perspective, Israel is a 7.79 and Saudi Arabia is a 1.93. Iraq is actually beating Egypt. Egypt hmm. at 3.36, Iraq at 4.06. Oh, but they're wow. both classified as, actually, no, Egypt is classified as authoritarian and they're classifying Iraq as a hybrid regime. <laughs> this is as of 2018, so it may have changed. Yeah. I was just going to say on the military note, I think you were telling me about this deal specifically with Turkey. And I think there are other countries where this is true too, is that like, the like civilians actually trust the military more than the government sometimes for certain things. And so like, when in the US, we see like, oh, the military took over the government and like put in their own leader. We see that as like categorically bad, but in some places it can actually be like a good thing. And it's something that like the citizens want because they trust the military to be a like check on like an overpowered government. And so like, I, I'm curious how that plays out in, in Egypt as well, or like just anywhere else. It, it's interesting to like hear about those dynamics in other places because it's it's like very foreign to me as a US citizen. Although to be honest, right, like I don't know. I, I generally trust the meritocratic competence of our military more than our politicians. Just be, at based this on, moment in time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Based on how the institutions are structured. Like right. Like I, I would trust a military general more than like a random senator, I think, in terms of like general competence. But the anti-democratic made you think podcast. That'd be exciting. <laughs> Wouldn't that be exciting if we had a military coup in the U.S.? Oh <laughs> no! <laughs> Adil's like, can I leave my name off this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I have a job. <laughs> yeah, I guess as the white as the white guy on the podcast, I can say these things safely. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Uh, so we'll, we'll end the U-turn. And go back to rule four. <laughs> uh, so rule four, pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal, but not more. I'm actually going to combine this with rule five because they're they're so similar that it's kind of odd to me they're separate. Yeah, so rule, rule four. Like an asterisk on rule four. Yeah. So rule four is pay your key supporters just enough to keep them loyal. And rule five is don't take money out of your supporters' pockets to make the people's lives better. The people here being the masses. 
So basically, in a nutshell, these two rules are you have key supporters, they have brought you to power, and now in order to stay in power, you need to make sure that they are well compensated for mistreating the rest of their citizens. At some places in the book, I don't remember the example they gave here, but the, they literally put a price on how much would you need to pay a cop or a mm-hmm. soldier to the, uh, kill a fellow the, citizen. Or the FIFA versus Olympics example was a good one, right? Where it was like, you only need to bribe like six FIFA officials to get the World Cup in your country, but you need to bribe like 23 Olympic officials to get the Olympics in your country. And a, a bribe for a FIFA official is like 200 to 400 grand, whereas an Olympic official is like 20 to 40 grand. So huh. this is all uh, very attainable by constitution DAO standards. I feel like. I was going to say, like, <laughs> you, you could get like 10 people in crypto together and you could get the Olympics to happen in like uh, just the most random ass play. <laughs> <laughs> if maybe bribe maybe DAO. If, uh, bribe DAO. Yeah. That would be what it's bribe called. DAO. <laughs> Maybe if one of these build a new city projects, uh, you know, starts shipping something besides blog posts, they can get the Olympics there. (laughs) Yeah, these numbers are like shockingly low, but they kind of make sense at the same time. Yeah. Like, especially if it's an accepted part of like, if you're a FIFA official and it's like, you know that everybody else is also doing this and it's like almost expected. It's all, I forget what movie it was. It was some cop movie where it was like, you don't want to be that cop that doesn't take the bribe. Like they all want to kill you if you don't take mm-hmm. the bribe. So in some ways you probably also, if you're like the one FIFA official that doesn't take a bribe, there's a target on your back. So yeah, if someone's like, Hey, here's 300 K to vote for this city instead of that city. And you're like, I don't care about either city. So I'll take 300 K <laughs> and you know, others are doing it. It's totally accepted. Like, I mean, on one level, I feel that it's so low, like it's just 200 to 400 K, but on, I mean, the Olympic one's even less. What was that? 20 to 40, 20 K to 40 K. Yeah, it was something like that. Hold on, I've got the. Question. It was like an order of magnitude less, but it was because. But you, you need, need to bribe, to bribe more, more of them. People. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder how this, like, from the perspective of a single person receiving bribes, like, is this figure the total number they receive from all countries vying for their vote, or is this just oh, what they get yeah. from only the winning country, and they actually pocket like twenty k, fifteen k, ten k, five k from all the other countries? So they have this like long tail of money they've made. Uh, but it's just the largest sum happens to be 40K. Because that, that actually strikes me as a very low number for the Olympics. Yeah, and I guess there also are like non-monetary uh, bribes. Like the thing that just popped into my head is you've probably heard about how, or maybe you haven't, um, defense contractors famously like split up work among as many key congressional districts as possible. So yeah, that, yeah. yeah. So that they have all these, and those are jobs basically, right? So you don't want to be the congressperson who voted to uh end this contract which lost your community you know 500 jobs or whatever all right i, I got the actual why. numbers oh hit it. i was a little off okay there are 24 members of fifa's executive committee and so you have to bribe 13 of them and the size of a fifa bribe is about eight hundred thousand dollars per person so it's kind of a lot so you have to pay 13 times 800 grand uh for the olympics four times as many votes as to buy the world cup 58 versus 13 and the bribes are in the hundred to two hundred thousand dollar range so i mean it's still only like five to ten million to get the olympics in your country or city like that's a pretty good roi i would think right like all the tourism money and stuff you get yeah 
if you're listening to this and you want to start a Olympics now, uh, get in Olympics touch style. with what made you think. Yeah, make <laughs> it happen. We'll do an OM fork. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll do a promo on the show. Get more, get more attention. Constitution Dow, Constitution Dow raised 47 million, right? Like Olympic Dow only needs a quarter of that. Good to go. <laughs> Feels very doable. Feels doable. Feels very doable. Just sell a few pictures of monkeys and we're there. <laughs> so the other thing around sell a few the pictures idea. of dictators. There should be like a dictator <laughs> NFT project. No, that would actually be pretty sense. cool. No one will buy oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been in the space long enough, Neil. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> the more sense it makes, the worse investment it is. <laughs> That's great advice, actually. I'm gonna keep that in mind. I might like I might like write that down. That's brilliant. The more sense it makes, the worse of an investment it is. Absolutely. Rules to live by. (laughs) For the crypto part two episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The don't take money out of your supporters' pockets to make people's lives better point. um, I thought was really interesting as well, because again, it goes back to how I think we traditionally view politics as like, oh, it's a way to like improve the country. But it's actually like more about it's about keeping power first and foremost. And then with whatever's left over, you can make yourself rich. And I think there's that one quote, I forget which leader said it is like a poor politician or a poor dictator is like a stupid dictator or something like that. Right. I forget. Yeah. yeah. That basically like you should end up rich uh, if you're a dictator because you're enriching yourself at the kind of expense of the people. But yeah, I think there were also examples. I forget. I, I'm, I see if I can find it in my notes of too many things I highlighted from this book where people like dictators who went against this rule found themselves taken out where they were, they were kind of like, not, they weren't uh, supporting, sorry, they were trying to support their people at the expense of their coalition. And Mm -hmm. they found themselves uh, kind of on the losing end after that. Caesar, that was the Caesar story. Yeah. Yeah. What they were saying in the book was that we have this kind of like myth or idea of Caesar as like, uh, here we go. Uh, Julius Caesar's death at the hands of some of his closest supporters is often portrayed as the slaying of a despot, but the facts don't support this interpretation. Julius Caesar was a reformer. He undertook important public works from redoing the calendar and relieving traffic congestion to stabilizing food availability. He also took steps specifically designed to help the poor. For instance, he provided land grants to former soldiers and got rid of the system of tax farming, replacing it with a more orderly and predictable tax system. Not only that, he relieved the people's debt burden by about 25%. Not surprisingly, though these policies were popular among the people, many came at the expense of Rome's prominent citizens. So that was his error. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of like, I feel like in the US, right? The the parallel would be if there was a sort of a truly progressive uh, candidate that won and truually went with like, let's say a wealth tax or something that really sort of handicaps wealthy and and powerful people in a written like a railway not just a way that could easily be like hidden in trusts or like i don't know how they'd actually go about doing it but if they if they were actually successful in that they might not last very long (laughs) you know what i mean just based on these rules like they might get you know taken out by by impeachment or or worse that's why i mean i find this is my limited political understanding, but like, and maybe a little bit of 
skepticism slash conspiracy. But th- this is one area where it's I just fun. find like when you have someone in office and then all three houses are controlled by one party, pass the fucking tax reform, right? Like you talk about it all the time and then nobody <laughs> does it. And it's like, yep. there's no interest in doing it. It's just, I don't know. They're, they're, this whole yeah. book actually has made me question like what makes a true progressive, right? Because in America, mm, uh, if yep. you think about like a conservative would uh, label themselves as someone who is interested in like individual freedoms and so on. And yet it happens to be so in America that conservatives are the likelier ones to be like reducing the size of the selectorate. Right? That's very interesting like to me. That's like the, the Patriot Act, all these types of things were under Republicans as well. Yeah, yeah. Right? Which yeah. is like, I think it's, you know, it's not surprising that like Republican, Democrat and conservative progressive aren't really the same thing. But it, it just strikes me as like they don't even have a real claim to the word conservative or progressive, except in like very narrow areas. It's just like two increasingly arbitrary groups. Yeah, mar- marijuana is the one that comes to mind for me with the, the Democrats, right? It's like, I feel like this issue comes up every election. And it's like, all right, you have the House, you have the Senate, you have the presidency. Like, nothing has moved on that. I mean, Nat, yeah. we did our episode on, uh, forget the name of the book, but the marijuana oh, book yeah. that we covered. Uh, that was 2018. Damn, that was yeah. 2018. We are in 2022. And still, like, still not legal from a federal standpoint. Yeah. I mean, there are more more states, I feel like, that have yeah. legalized it since then. But it's probably because yeah. potheads are too lazy to vote. So <laughs> just, <laughs> just hanging out at home, watching Rick and Morty, you know, eating pizza. Like, we're not voting for shit. You know, <laughs> not a bad point, support. actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're not part of the selectorate. That's yeah. It. That's yeah. It. This is why Adderall is legal and pot is not. Because if you get all the kids hopped up on Adderall, they are going to run out and vote in between their like, you know, whatever three different courses they're taking and like all that other <laughs> shit. But you legalize pot, like no one's voting. There's... <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it's like the states don't want it to be federally legal now because they get all the tax money get from all tax each money? of the, yeah. all the states that uh, have legalized That's it. True. Maybe they're like, hey, let's just keep it going. This is a good like I forget. I think Colorado had gotten some massive amount of money. Like yeah, they they um, did a refund. Yeah. They yeah. they sent money back yeah. to everyone because they were like, we collected too much money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So maybe they like. I wonder if states like that just. Yeah, I, I just I wonder if states like that have like a opposite incentive to not yeah. make it federally legal because the feds are I mean, going to take their cut too if it's federally. That's legal, actually the thing that makes me optimistic something. about all the marijuana legalization stuff is it's the first. Is the first thing I can think of in our lifetime where we are seeing a serious like return to states' rights, right? Where it was like, I think the only big thing before this, and like I guess we might see this again, was like abortion, right? Where there was like this big divide between states and like, but there wasn't a national law that it was going against, right? It was just like, okay, states can decide, and then there was a national law. Like marijuana is interesting because it is a national law that it's illegal, but then the states are like. Nah, nah, like it's actually not right, <laughs> yeah. and you know, I, I think I, I was having this thought too, where like if we see, and we're going to talk about this in future episodes, but like what could come down the pipe in terms of like the financial unwinding of like the dollar and the federal government's control over the money supply, right? You could actually see states decide to like you know reduce their reliance on the federal government in terms of like supporting things in favor of like in-state like revenue generation and stuff right like you know one thing some a place like texas could do that would actually be pretty interesting is they say like 
okay, if you're a Texas citizen, like you only have to pay half your federal income tax and like, we will defend you to like the country, but now there's like a 10% state income tax, right? So it's a great deal for everybody in Texas because we're paying net lower right. like income tax and then Texas could just like do all of its own domestic services, but if you, right? Like, but if you stepped out, step foot outside Texas, yeah, happens? well, that, you've got like you've got to deal with all of that, right? This is like these kind of like interesting things you could consider right, yep. around that if like states decided to push even harder in the like greater states' rights direction. Yeah, and it's also like a cool decentralized experiment too, right? It's like yeah. all these states. There were only a couple at the beginning that started allowing marijuana and then more and more of them saw, Hey, this is actually working out really well because yeah. people were smoking before, but we didn't get a cut. Now we get it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like a little more standardized. Like it's a little safer. You're not going into like an alley to buy it from some yeah. sketch guy. I mean, the um, laws were real, were literally created as an excuse to arrest and harass black and Mexican people. Like yeah. it, yeah, it literally could not be episode. clearer yeah. that that is why those laws were created. <laughs> and so it's it just like all this nonsense around like, oh, well, it's drugs and it's bad for you. It's like, you know, oxycodone, oxy, oxycodone kills more people than like basically everything except for, you know, like cancer and heart disease and stuff, right? Like, I'm pretty sure you're more likely to overdose on oxycodone than die from COVID at this point. Like it's, and like, we're not doing anything about that, but like marijuana is illegal. Like, Yeah. Or whole, even just like, even just like alcohol and all the things that are tied with alcohol, yeah. right? Like talk about car crashes, uh, domestic abuse. A lot of times is tied to alcohol, uh, alcoholism, liver problem. I mean, there's so many things that go along with it. Yeah. There's no issues with that. That's fine. I'm pretty sure I'm pr- I, I cannot imagine a situation in which somebody like smoked a ton of pot and then beat their spouse. Like, <laughs> It's a very different drug from alcohol. I know I shouldn't like, be laughing at that, but I could not imagine that. It was Yeah, it's just like <laughs> alcohol is awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah so I guess like, yeah, that but the cool thing going back to the decentralization point is it's like one or two states started this as an experiment yeah. for the rest of the or as a model basically for the rest of the country. If it failed miserably and like things that entire state started falling apart, like no one would have followed it, right? But now it's it's shown to have worked in many states and other states were like, hey, we should do that too. It seems like it worked out. And I think, Nat, to your point about uh, about like reducing dependence on the dollar, I could see something similar uh, along the same way. Like one state like gets really bold and says, some, I mean, maybe it's not exactly what you said, but it's something that reduces their dependence on the federal government. And, uh, and then if it works, right, like that then can become a model. But the thing that's cool about the US system that I really like is you have this potential for 50 different experiments and you kind of have 50 different experiments ongoing at any given time. Yeah. Less and less so these days, sadly, I would like to see a reversion towards more stuff happening at the state level, but we are seeing that, right? I feel feel like, I feel like we're seeing that that more than, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're seeing it more than we were like two, two, three years ago. Yeah. I think it's a one-off for COVID. Well, I think there's actually a bit of escalation, like is sort of my hypothesis Mm. is on one hand, there's going to be more federalization of things and it's going to rile up states and Mm. it's going to look like both are happening because it already feels like both are happening. Um, So clearly there's like some unclaimed territory and it's just like on which side is it going to land? And now we basically have a party that is committed to federalizing, the federalizing, I'm using that word wrong, but to doing more things at the federal level at any point in time it's like every single idea in the democratic debates in 2020 was just like yeah a committee for this like a bureau that is, for that. yeah that's a really good point actually a deal yeah. it feels like the political divide is 
almost less about individual policies at this point, right? Of like, you know, gay rights or like, you know, gun laws or things like that. And it's more about like, do we think the federal government should be like controlling what everyone is doing or should we like keep more of the power in the like individuals and states? And that, that seems like where a lot of the debate I think resides now. Um, It's hard because it's actually a very complicated thing to pose to a large number of people because you basically have to convince them that some amount of chaos and the occurrence of the occasional bad outcome is actually good. It's effectively like you need to give everyone a copy of Anti-Fragile and you're like, hey, look, yeah, like, yeah. A, occasionally a plane will go down, but the whole practice of flying will benefit from it. And like, that's okay that we have some of those natural experiments. We're going to um, lose Vermont, but it's okay. The other 49 <laughs> will be better for it. We'll take Puerto Rico. Yeah. It's, 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 there it's we go. so Replaced. little anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what, Adil, though? It's not... there the whole population is never going to read anti-fragile, but somebody's going to have to like meme it or like come, come up with like the, the perfect meme to get this idea across and they'll win like everything. Cause memes, memes are what win now. Like yeah. you're definitely not going to get a population to read a book. That's and like Telez's of production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, like man. We could have just gone on a Taleb tangent there, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that. <laughs> Still love the books, I will say that. But still love the books. He blocked me on Twitter now, but what books? Story, story. Oh, that happened. Now we have to go on the tangent. Yeah, well, somebody tweeted at me and was like, you know, hey, you know, I know you're like a big fan of Taleb and you're also really into crypto, right? Like, what do you think about all of his criticisms of crypto and Bitcoin? And I, I, I quote tweeted a response to it where to him. And I said, like, I don't know why everybody cares what Taleb thinks about Bitcoin. He's like an incredible writer and amazing philosopher, but he's not like a technologist. Like he doesn't know anything about this thing that he's like obsessed about criticizing over. Um, I also threw in a line about him being like a probably like just okay trader as well. And then I told everyone to go read the Tale of Two Taleb's article. And oh, I, I, yeah, I, I read that. I, I was no, like, no, I was like, that, he's yeah. my favorite. I was like, he's like top three favorite writers of all time. Like absolutely incredible books. I recommend them to everyone, but like he just, he has no expertise in this area at all. Right. Like, why would you listen to him here? Like you can idolize somebody in one place without like idolizing them everywhere. And you know, I was a little offended that he just blocked me instead of yelling at me. Uh, I, 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 I was I like, that, what's up with him? <laughs> like, yeah. He's, I, I really wanted him to come after me, but he didn't give me that satisfaction. Well, I would have so. respected that more. Like if yeah, he, if he argued with you on it, like I remember you called out uh, Gary V once on something and to his credit, he did actually respond if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. I feel bad like, about that one though. That was, yeah. that, that, no, no. I mean, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. No, no, no. I know what you mean yeah. though. Yeah. Like we, we yeah, had a good I mean, like, dialogue at least he about responded. it afterwards. Yeah. At least yeah. he responded. Right. Like Taleb just hits the block button and is like, nope not engaging and yep. but but like he will publicly call out tons of people exactly yeah he that's, that, that's the thing it's fine if he like, does if it. <laughs> yeah it's not fine if other people do it to him yeah and the the thing that was wild is i read uh last year i read the bitcoin standard and i i guess the copy oh, yeah, he wrote the forward bought, didn't he yeah i had bought the yeah. old copy because i guess the new version has sailor who wrote the the forward but okay. um the old copy that I had was I saw I see Taleb on the cover when the book comes and I'm like yeah what like is yeah, this the yeah. same Taleb like that. what's going on and his so his forward funny. is so I have a feeling he either didn't write the forward himself because that happens a lot like people yeah. will just they'll tell the author to write the forward and then just put the other person's name on it 
I would hope that Taleb didn't do that, just given things that he said in the past. <laughs> it like, sound like Taleb. That's usually a dead giveaway. No, it did. It, 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 it did, did, but I think like, I could write as if it were Taleb yeah. if I needed to. So know? there's that. And then the other thing is that I can't like I can't reconcile what he wrote with what he now says. I mean, what I've seen him because I, I haven't been blocked yet. Uh <laughs> it might happen at some Gotta point. Spicier. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I've seen I've seen him say that like. I changed my mind because I'm better informed about it now. Right. Or like, or it failed the test of like decoupling from equity values. So therefore it's just the equity, meaning it should be zero because at least the equity has a company behind it and like a cash flow generation behind it. And it's like, okay, I can understand that argument. Uh, I mean, I don't agree with it, but I can understand that argument, but I don't understand how then he could have written the forward without understanding that. Cause it's not like Bitcoin changed. Like nothing changed about Bitcoin really, besides that. Yeah. I mean, I guess a little more time passed where it kind of still stayed with equity values. So I don't, I don't really understand what's going on with him, but whatever. <laughs> That's our Taleb tangent. It's disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing to say the least. I can't believe you're blocked though. That's that's weak. It's okay. It's a sign of respect, I think. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it a good is. signal. You should add it to your bio. Yeah, if you're if you're Black not blocked places. by if you're not blocked by Taylor Lorenz and Nassim Taleb, do you even have opinions? Like, <laughs> oh, you know what? She did block me though. Remember, like a couple last year, I think like you had said something, and that I forget exactly what it was, but I remember I responded to her on one of your tweets or something, and I got blocked too. Oh no, but that was actually that was actually annoying because I didn't even say anything mean to her. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, she said something kind of contradictory and I pointed it out. Like I wasn't even being a yeah. dick. Like I, I can hundred percent be a dick on Twitter sometimes. Like I, I accept that. Like I would, I would Part own it fun. if I deserved it. I, I didn't, I don't think I deserved that one, but it's okay. We're way so, off topic now. <laughs> so we've got the yeah, life cycle working. of a dictator. I got an idea for like bring the last piece in. Yeah. The right. life cycle of a dictator bring us home a deal. from the accumulation of power the maintenance of power, which involves the control of the treasury. And then there's the tail end. And the tail end is either creating a dynasty, finding a successor, or getting overthrown in a revolution and getting killed. Uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And that'll kind of round us out through uh, the life cycle of becoming a dictator. The uh, one idea I can kick us off with is when you're a dictator and you get sick, you got to keep it a secret. Never thought about this before, but basically you get sick and all of a sudden it doesn't really matter what happens to you. Everyone who depends on you, they are no longer secure and they are looking for someone else. And this kind of put certain like recent events into, uh, made them a bit more like clear for me. Like when uh, Kim Jong-un had his health scare, uh, I think it was like 2018 or 2019 and he wasn't in the public eye for like three months. Like when I thought about that at the time, I was like, oh, well, you know, I wonder what will happen if he dies. But I, I can only imagine the like internal turmoil there. The other following Kim Jong-un actually is that he was educated outside of Korea. Yeah. This is an immediate tangent, but just to go for it, because uh, <laughs> they don't have schools that they would send him to in the country. But anyway, then he had his health scare and you got to keep it a secret. Yeah, I liked that line about uh, Oxford being a breeding ground for autocrats. <laughs> like because all of them went there i thought that was pretty funny yeah yeah this is also like i mean this is a purely fictional example but uh in the godfather too after uh godfather one when the don got shot right like after that everybody started coming after the family because they knew that the don i mean he wasn't killed but he was injured 
It's kind of that same yeah. rule, right? It's like, and they even had somebody who was really close to the family betray them probably for that same reason. Cause it was like, well, if he's going to die, then I need to look out for myself and join the next, the next powerful family. Right. And the way you kind of avoid this is before you either die in your sleep or before you get sick and people know about it, you need to have a succession plan lined up that your key supporters believe in so that when their future comes into question, they're not worried about it. And this can be like your kid, it should be somebody hand-chosen, please keep a peaceful transition of power, avoid the tumult that you endured at the beginning of your term. Term yeah. is the wrong word for it. But... <laughs> Rain. Rain. Yeah, I guess I guess along those lines, like um, monarchies are a little less chaotic than authoritarian or dictatorship regimes, right? Because with monarchies, at least the rules yeah. for transition Probably of power for that are, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I would imagine a lot of monarchies probably started with a revolution or dictator taking power, and then they eventually become monarch. I mean, I don't know actually. I don't know if I'm making that up, but I would imagine. Like, how does the first monarch start? Like, it has to be from Probably conquering power. land, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. 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 Is a monarchy emergent or is it declared? Like when you first become an autocrat, do you say, my, like, this is now a monarchy, it's going to be my kid? Or is it emergent, like after a generation? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. But I would imagine it's a little less chaotic, at least, yeah. um, because you know the rules. So it's like, all right, this one dies. Like, at least we know yeah. who's the next in line. If it's not that one, we know the next in line. I'm sure it still gets messy because people will probably try to come for that person yeah well there's that story in the book right of the the king who died and then he had two like Mm. 11 or 12 year old sons and then his brother like killed his son so his brother could become king like still got some messiness but i guess in the in the grand scheme of all types of messy transitions that's still less crazy than like a full military like takeover type thing it's pretty amazing what England has pulled off, right? It's like they have increased the size of the selectorate while maintaining uh, a monarchy. Like that is yeah. actually not a, like we've, we've been born into it. So it's obvious to us, but that's actually not an obvious outcome at all. Yeah. That, you have to keep the, the masses so happy such that they don't go and say like, why does this one family just get to like live rent free in this incredibly <laughs> uh, crazy way? It's kind of impressive that it's persisted at this scale for so long. But I guess it's and they like, still have a ton of wealth. Like I forget yeah. exactly what that number is, but it's like when you add up the value of all their land and other holdings and stuff, it's like I think it's in the hundreds of billions for the royal family. Like it's a lot. The Kardashians got to step it up. American <laughs> royalty. <laughs> American monarchy. That would be like yeah. that would be like idiocracy too, if they made yeah. one. And it would be like the Kardashian monarchy, right? Like the Queen dynasty. Kim. Yeah, well, it would start with that, but then it would go like generation to generation, yeah. right? And it would be like the story would pick up 10 generations down the road. There we go. And see where <laughs> we are. Please make the sequel. I don't know who made the first one, but it was it was brilliant. Yeah, the first one was a little too prescient, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it became a documentary rather than a, Yeah, exactly. Uh... <laughs> got, got got real 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 fast. <laughs> the accidental documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there there's a whole section in the book about like when the uh, coalitions realize they're under threat, instead of getting kicked out of it, they expand it, which appears mm-hmm. to be the case in uh, some of these European monarchies. Like, It makes sense. I mean, it, to some extent, this is kind of like what he goes through as well, right? Where it's like, uh, you know, as a company gets bigger, it necessarily increases the size of the coalition, right? Because one, 
there are a lot more shareholders involved who want their interests protected and would prefer to have more power. And so you have to like necessarily give them some power so that they don't demand all the power, right? It's like being willing to give up a board seat to a VC investor in an A or B round because you'd rather give that up than have a situation where they try to replace you entirely, right? Like, even though it's worse for you as the leader to give up any power, giving up some power is better than giving up like total control. So it's kind of like an interesting effect in that sense, right? Like if you can balance that well over a long enough time period, you can de-escalate from kind of authoritarian to more democratic leadership. But you can also see how like if you do it at the wrong speed in the wrong places, uh, somebody else could swoop in and like gain more control than you want. Yeah. How does it work they, for companies that have the like super voting shares that the founders get? Like, is that just like the VCs are okay with the founders still having complete control and they just want the financial benefits of the shares that they own? Because you see sure. some of these and it's like, no you'll idea. see like, yeah, like, like Coinbase or Facebook. Or... Yep. Yeah. That's exactly. Those are the two I was thinking. Yeah. Because those I mean, I are guess probably like more that, like that would probably be a negotiation those... tactic. Yeah. Right. And like, I would, you know, they're probably be my negotiation tactic too is like okay well if you want to buy this much of the company then i like keep control yeah. or you can you know get and it they might they like, might word it as like they also might word it as uh like almost a benefit to the investors like say like well mm-hmm. you know i got the company to where you know to this point and so you probably yeah. want to continue backing me and my decisions right and like maybe that's how they i'm sure the vcs don't buy it. like they're, they're probably smarter than that but you're right it's I mean, probably a negotiation well, there's also this element of like a, the more democratic a leadership or a group is like the weaker and slower it is. And like a company can't compete very well if it's weak and slow and requires like broad consensus yeah. on things. So as long as you see a company being in a growth stage, it makes sense to consolidate power in like very few individuals so they can move really, really quickly. But once it hits like a certain, you know, once it's past growth and it's just that like, a maintenance stage, right? Like, uh, you know, Microsoft maybe, then uh, it makes more sense to have that power kind of like distributed so that it moves a little slower, but retains its like market status. And stability, I, I guess. Too. There's gotta be something there, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. somebody explained this once and I thought, I'd never thought of it this way, but it's really compelling, which is like people get frustrated about how like slow stuff is in America and how like long it takes to get things changed and everything. And like, that's a feature, not a bug. Like that's the point of democracy is for things to move really slowly because you don't want a like random person to be able to come in and just like change everything on a whim. Right. Yeah. And I've actually thought about that with like my own voting decisions now too, which is like, if I, if there aren't candidates that I absolutely love, then I'll just vote for like a variety of people from both parties, like with the goal of creating like more gridlock. So things just generally move slower, right? Because it's like slow is better than like unknown fast changes. We're very spoiled because we've never really experienced a government that's malicious against its own people. So we sort of assume that like the choices are either slow or like fast and good as opposed to slow and fast, but it can be good or bad. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. We, we really like the idea of a fast government, assuming it's our people in charge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. You hear this a lot of people like, I understand the Singapore example, but I think people are, it's now becoming a little overrated and overused with like, oh, like we could move faster. We could be like them. And it's like, 
yeah, but we're not really going to be like them. We're going to adopt their system. And then there's going to be a 99.9% chance that it's going to get abused and wrecked at a very fast pace. So like yeah. the slow is actually an insurance policy against fast destruction. Yeah. It's, it's like when fast progress. Absolutely. Like, it's kind of like when you, I don't, you don't hear it as much anymore, but I feel like five or six years ago, you would hear a lot of praise of the speed at which China can move. Right. Yeah. And like, and I think like now it's less fashionable to say that, but I remember hearing a lot of people in power, uh, both in, in business and in politics, I feel like at least being complimentary to their system because of, oh, they can build a hospital in this amount of, you know, in days or weeks rather than years. And, and okay, sure. There are like, we can certainly do better. Like this train that's being built in California, right? Like there's no reason it needs to take like 40 yeah, years. It's not like, being built. It's not, being, yeah, it's not, it's not, <laughs> yeah, but you see what I'm saying though, right? Like it's, it, we can definitely do a better job, yeah. but we also don't want to, uh, like, we purposely do not want to adopt China's system and yeah, they can move fast, but they can also move fast with literally having like a slave class of people or yeah. canceling your banking ability to do banking or, yeah. you know, like they're like, they are an authoritarian regime. We don't want that. Like we sure there are things we can learn in terms of like maybe not tying ourselves up in as much red tape and shooting ourselves in the foot. But like, we don't want to adopt their system for sure. That's not a feature. Well, unless it's the people who we agree with, then it's okay. (laughs) Well, maybe, right? Like, okay, so here's the the flip side to that, right? If you look at every, uh, because this was in the cultural revolution book that Nat, you and I had started uh, talking about, I think during the update episode, a lot of the people who got screwed by the cultural uh, revolution in China mm-hmm. were prominent supporters of the revolution. Yeah, yeah. Like, so their side won, but then, you know, I forget how many tens of millions of people got killed in sort of the next, the next sort of weeding out of, uh, of people. Right. How did that go down? Like, what I, I'm not familiar with this. Like, well, oh, why yeah. Did they I mean, weed it out? It's been, well, it's basically like, it's like same it's as the bad like party in, thing. Right. Exactly. So very much like that. Yeah. And it's also like uh, in the Soviet Union, right? You had like the Trotskyites and the uh, and the people who supported Lenin. Like it's like they were all on the same side at the beginning. And then, you know, there's always two camps that emerge or multiple camps that emerge. Doesn't have to be two. It could be more. And the side that wins doesn't want, you know, the losing second group to be part of that or threaten their power. And just, you know, you end up eating your own, basically. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, should we wrap yeah. up? <laughs> should we, uh, before we totally wrap, <clears throat> since this is part of the crypto canon, should we talk a little bit about crypto and selector theory? Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of in terms of some of the lessons from this book, like I think the large coalitions are a, a, a way to incentivize good behavior. And it seems like the, the groups that, or sorry, if you're an autocrat, you want the smallest group possible but if you are a uh if you are just hoping for a well-run system that is not an uh, authoritarian system you want a, a larger group and you could argue that in in sort of crypto universe right whether it's DAOs or even like staking and being able to vote right on uh, on governance there are a lot of stakeholders and basically like anybody like the barrier to becoming a stakeholder is very low it's just have a token or hold the coin and uh, I think that's Actually, like after reading this, that's actually another sort of plus point in the, like, I, I didn't have to be convinced that crypto is, it has a lot of uh, world changing powers and, and is just like, certainly not a flash in the pan, but this was another point in its favor that I didn't really understand before this book. Well, and you can see it within 
con or within like trade-offs between chains too, right? Where it's like, you know, uh, Solana is sort of like very centralized, like it's an autocratic mm. blockchain, right? Where it's like the Solana foundation team labs, like the CEO and whatnot, they can sort of like do whatever they want. And people who hold Solana tokens have like very little power to like change that, right? Like they can sort of turn off and turn on the network. They can like make changes to it. Like you don't have that much say on something like Solana. And then you've got like an Ethereum, which is a lot closer to being fully like community owned and driven. And like the Ethereum foundation still has a pretty high amount of sway, but it's sort of like, it's at least transcended them in the point where like, if Vitalik and all of them like stopped working on it, people would still work on it and it would still keep going. They have like Bitcoin, which is kind of like all the way in the fully like maximally democratic decentralized. Um, but it, you get this funny trade-off where like Bitcoin's almost too far down that path where now like no or very little innovation happens compared to on other things because there's almost like so little incentive for it that people don't do it. Right. Whereas like it's really hard to get adoption. It's really yeah, and really it's like really, really hard to yep. on it. Right. So it's kind of an interesting case study of like, all right, the like slightly more centralized power in the Ethereum community is driving like faster development on the base protocol compared to Bitcoin. And then something like a Solana or an Avalanche can innovate like really, 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 really quickly compared to Ethereum as well, but not necessarily always in like positive ways for the like end users, depending on your goals, right? Like it's definitely good for, for certain goals. So it's kind of interesting to see like those dynamics play out as well here. And then even, even within like crypto protocols and stuff, right? Like with DeFi stuff, there's this question of like token governance and voting, right? And like, how does stuff get decided? And like, I think there's a lot of legitimate criticism against just like token based voting, right? So like however many tokens you have or how many votes you get, because then you, it kind of like, it starts off as like this idea of decentralized power. But like, if somebody just gets enough of the tokens and they can like sneak some proposals through they can make you know some undesirable stuff happen right like there were a few of those uniswap grants that like a few large uni token holders tried to like sneak through uh and kind of almost got away with because like people weren't paying attention to the the voting boards and they were like gonna send out like millions and millions of dollars of uni tokens for them to use on stuff and it's just like you see a lot of the same dynamics play out the difference being like everything's traceable now which adds this kind of like additional fun element to it yeah the traceable like solving the information asymmetry point because that came up in the book a bit too as folks would uh as countries that receive like the internet or cellular connectivity or even just like roads as like the most basic form of the movement of information and the ability to organize this just takes it to the furthest extreme is that organization becomes really easy. The other thing I find compelling from uh, crypto selector theory intersection is there are very low exit costs in crypto. So if you have a centralized actor or even like a majority of actors who have taken over a network and taken in a bad direction, uh, you can fork or you can just leave. And those move a lot of power out of the uh, coalitions that would otherwise be able to like you know, abuse it. Let's say you have like a 51% attack or you have like a mischievous, you know, whatever Solana labs or whomever. The exit costs are so low and the value of the network is so closely tied to it that it just fundamentally 
uh, moves power into the nominal selectorate as opposed to folks who are like whatever the ruling coalition would be in this case, those who can like commit code to the core repositories. Yeah, the, the exitability is definitely pretty interesting in that sense. Yeah. Or it's like the minute you get that scent of malfeasance, you know, you could just take your money and go, right? And not just within crypto stuff, but within like nation state stuff too. I mean, I, you know, I had this realization a few months ago, which I think is actually a pretty powerful one where it's like, if, if it seemed like shit was getting bad in the U S I could just take my money and go. Right. And it's like, it's not, most of it's not in a U.S. bank account anymore. So like the government doesn't have any like power over like my money. And I think it's true for a lot of people now, right. Where if the government did say like, oh, well, we're actually going to like, you know, you can't own like, you know, all these assets anymore. We're going to like seize the land or like just, you know, really crazy, like cultural revolution style, like stuff. If it happened with the U.S. dollar, right. And I'm not saying it would, it's just possible, right. Like if everybody has their private keys, I mean, like you can just take your money and leave. Yeah. <laughs> like as long as you're not stopped by a guy with a gun. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, Balaji so. was actually talking about this today. Um, on on Twitter in regards to the uh, in regards to the uh, Canada stuff, like yeah. he was saying, Bitcoin isn't unseizable because somebody can you know somebody can show up with a gun and you know what are you going to do? They're going to hit you with a wrench or something and make you give up, torture you, make you give up your private key. You know, right. we we all can think we're going to be uh, you know Rambo or something and like survive that and and not give it up. Most probably they have ways of getting each individual person to give it up. However, the cost to go do that for every single person is basically more than it's than it's worth. And so right now the the status quo situation is like what they're doing in Canada which is you can shut off bank accounts or shut off the ability to access the banking system yeah. with a switch of a you know it's just a button basically right it's not you don't have to physically go capture anybody you don't have to take them to jail you don't have to torture them there's just hey we're going to shut you off from the financial system whereas if the cost to doing it was you had to physically go and torture them out of their private keys, like it's a lot more expensive to shut somebody out of the banking system then. Yeah. And they're just but not going to do it for most people. Yeah. They don't even have to torture you. They just put you in a cell and it's like, all right, like, well, please give us your keys. This is the thing that always surprises me when someone has like a hundred million dollars in their ENS address, not in their ENS address, but in the wallet that it points to. Yeah. It's like, I would just be worried about my physical safety at that. Oh yeah. That's a great point. Well, th yeah. Did you see that story about the guy who almost got scammed last week? Yeah. Yeah. 160 I mean, mil. Yeah, exactly. He had 160 what? million sitting on the wallet with his ENS and his ENS was his Twitter handle, right? It's like, okay. Yeah. Somebody trying to scam you bad, but you fucking asked for it, dude. Like what did you think was going to happen? I mean, I'm actually surprised insane. the physical thing hasn't happened more. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be giving I'm people ideas, but it just, it doesn't seem like there are, yeah, it just, I'm kind of surprised by it because yeah. people aren't the smartest with, you know, like doxing their locations and stuff too. Yeah. But if you, if you have a ledger, if you have a ledger and you don't have a gun, I feel like you gotta, you gotta balance that out a little bit. <laughs> you need both <laughs> cold, cold storage and cold lead cold storage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a cool, uh, cool, cool brand name. It's like cold, cold storage and cold steel or something like that. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, cold storage and hot lead. I don't know. There's something yeah. there. <laughs> Our new sponsors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our new sponsors. <laughs> Smith and Wesson. <laughs> yeah.
That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be for it. Sponsored, we're sponsored by uh, Force of Nature Meats, uh, yeah. Smith and Wesson, and Ledger. <laughs> yeah. Protect your money. Protect your family. Protect your health. It's all you need. <laughs> Um, anything else? Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like that note to wrap up on. <laughs> um, I guess if you're still listening this far, uh, one other thing is that Adil will be back in future episodes. We're turning this into a little bit of a series. Um, so the next one we're going to do in this series is seeing like a state, right? Yep. Um, so that one's coming up probably in like, maybe like a month after you hear this one. Yeah, sounds about right. That book's well, a bit of a, a, a slog. A, so. Assuming you're assuming you're listening to this like when it comes out, it's coming out about a month after. Yeah. You listen to this at some further date. Uh, yeah, it, go you can tune go in right now. It. You can yeah. go listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, thanks, Adil, for joining us, and uh, yes, yeah, see everyone next time. See, see everyone next time. time.